Stay inspired on the go with Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast from internationally acclaimed executive coaches, authors and ministers, Albert and Comfort Okran. You will be inspired and challenged with strategies to consistently reach for new heights. And now, today's message by Reverend Albert Okran. We want to revisit our case studies of biblical characters in our quest to influence our city, our nation, and our world for Christ. We've studied the Apostle Paul, who is said to have turned the whole world upside down. We've had the opportunity to look at Joseph, whom Pharaoh called Zaphnathaniah, or the savior of the world. Today we take a closer look at some greatness secrets of a very unusual man. A man who played a significant role in the ministry of Jesus. Today we focus on John the Baptist, the world changer. The title of my message is Locusts and Wild Honey. Locusts and Wild Honey. Our foundational scripture will be from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 1 to 11, locusts and wild honey. Matthew, chapter 11, verse 1, all the way through to verse 11. Bible says, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there teach and to preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to him, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did he go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did he go to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? Verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. May the Lord bless his word. Amen. John the Baptist had been imprisoned by Herod for criticizing him for taking his brother Philip's wife. And he knew the likely consequence of his imprisonment. 
And so while he was in prison, he kept monitoring Jesus' ministry and he kept hearing about what Jesus was doing. But at a point, he sent two unnamed disciples to Jesus with a simple question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Now Jesus gave a reply detailing the works that were evident in his ministry. But after the two disciples left, ostensibly all those around had heard the question. And so Jesus turned to them and described John as the greatest man born of woman. Now what did John do to merit that significant endorsement by Jesus? And why did the Lord Jesus Christ add that the least person in the kingdom of heaven was greater than John? We want to focus in our study of John on four distinctive pillars of his life that you may want to call the hallmarks of the greatness of John the Baptist. We'll look at his sense of mission, his life of self-denial, his sense of a strong sense of conviction, and then a moment of uncertainty in his life, something that every one of us experiences. Mission, self-denial, conviction, and uncertainty. Let's start with the mission of the man called John. John was born to serve another. That is the reason why he was born. His whole life was focused on, derived from, and intertwined with the life of Christ. Without Christ, John had no life. John's life, purpose, and mission was about Christ. 700 years before he was born, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 that somebody will come and prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah mentioned his ministry, the location of the ministry, and his connection with the Messiah. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He then goes on to describe what will happen when that messenger is sent forth. But the fundamental point here is that way before John was born, his life, his mission, the location of his ministry, the outlook, his message had been defined for him. Even his birth was divinely orchestrated to fit a particular time. Until the Messiah was ready to come, John could not be born. His mother had to be called barren until her old age. When the Messiah was ready to come, the circumstance for John's birth was divinely orchestrated because John's life was linked with Christ. Even in his mother's womb, the Bible says when Elizabeth met Mary. John in the womb recognized Christ. In Luke 141, Bible says the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy at the sighting of Jesus in his mother's womb. Tell somebody there was a connection. 
John's life, his ministry, his message, his calling, his destiny can be summed up in a five-letter word. J-E-S-U-S. John's life was Christ. Now, here's the question. What do you do when your life's mission is about another person? For many of us, we get excited about our life, our mission, the thing we are doing, the projects that we are involved in. When we look at the direct benefit to us, the promotion that will come to us, the the upliftment that we will experience as a result of the realization of that mission. But for every one of us here who is an employee, an associate, a support for somebody, a volunteer, what do you do? Do you feel the same excitement as when the project is yours? It is a test that everyone must pass because not everything that God would call you to do in life is directly beneficial to you or directly about yourself and about your promotion. Hallelujah. Many people fail the test of submitting faithfully to and diligently serving another. And that is how come we hear stories of betrayal, fraud, disloyalty, theft, cheating, embezzlement, and the like. Our true greatness lies in appreciating, discovering who God has called us to serve and serving them with faithfulness and with distinction. Hallelujah. In pursuing the mission, John had to deal with a peculiar problem that many of us would also encounter, and that is the trap of familiarity. Familiarity. The trap of familiarity. We learned a couple of weeks ago about destiny connectors assigned by God to help you fulfill your mission in life. And every one of us has a destiny connector. Somebody that God sends your way to enable the process of realizing your vision in life. That person could be a business partner, that person could be a ministry partner, an encourager, a financier, a support, somebody who just brings correction to you at critical stages in your life. The person could even be a bouncing board, somebody that you just share your ideas with and you feel encouraged. Everybody needs a destiny connector, a mentor, a pastor, a coach, a leader. Sometimes proximity breeds familiarity. And there's a temptation sometimes to take people like that for granted. It is the same familiarity that made the people of Nazareth struggle to accept the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 13 verse 54 to 58 Bible talks about a very interesting encounter Jesus had when he came to Nazareth he had had an amazing experience ministering in different cities the blind seeing the deaf hearing the dead being raised the fame of his ministry had spread abroad you want to assume that if somebody went out and won the world title either in boxing, football and the person is coming home there will be a delegation at the airport 
riding through the principal streets with people waving flags. It's expected to be a huge homecoming. But that did not happen in Jesus' case. Because Bible says when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. And they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Two things were operating in Nazareth, offense and unbelief. Literally saying, how dare you come and perform these things here? Who do you think you are? Offense and for that matter, unbelief. Now here's my question. If the people of Nazareth were offended because they knew Jesus' family and they mentioned the whole, the whole family, roll call. The parents, the brothers by name, the sisters, they, they mentioned the whole family. The problem they had was that they knew the whole family. They knew them by name. They knew his beginnings. They knew the family business. They were carpenters. And so they could not relate to the fact that God was doing something supernatural in the life of Jesus. Now, if the people of Nazareth were offended and did not believe because they knew Jesus' family, then John had a stronger reason to disbelieve Jesus. Because there were three things that were at work in John's case and three things that could have triggered a sense of disrespect for Jesus' life and ministry. The first thing was that John had a relationship, a blood relationship with Christ. He was his cousin. And so if just being in the same village was a cause for offense and unbelief, then he being his cousin should have been a greater offense. The second thing is that he was older than him by six months. And if it is our local context, even for twins, someone is paying somebody's kakra and they are quick to remind you who is older. So in that context, John was older than Jesus and could therefore have treated his ministry with the same offense and the same sense of unbelief that was evident in Nazareth. The third reason is very peculiar. John was a Levite. His father was a priest. His mother was a Levite. And so if there was anyone who had a priestly connection, it should have been John. How do you relate to somebody who does not have the lineage that you would assume is normally associated with priests and still respect his ministry. I'm saying that John could have submitted himself to the trap of familiarity. But guess who introduced Jesus' ministry? John was the one who officially introduced the ministry of Jesus. The Bible talks about the fact that John was a messenger sent to prepare the way of the Lord. What did he mean to prepare the way of the Lord? First, he preached repentance and baptism. And then also preparation 
for the coming of the Messiah. It was important that considering the kind of ministry Jesus was bringing, somebody go ahead to send a signal about something different from the old dispensation that the Jewish people were normally used to. And the Bible said that people responded in their numbers and they came from all over to be baptized by John. From all the surrounding cities, they gathered and he baptized them. But in John chapter 1 verse 29 to 31, Jesus himself came to the Jordan. And John took advantage of that moment at a time when his popularity was the highest to affirm that this was the one they were waiting for. Let's go to John 1 29. Bible says the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Very interesting. And so at the point where John's glory was at the highest peak, if everybody from Judea, everybody from Samaria, and all the surrounding regions were coming to John to be baptized, there was literally like a queue. And who was everyone looking for? John. And so human nature suggests that if Jesus arrived at that time, he was coming to steal John's fire or take away John's glory. The Bible says John lifted up his eyes, turned to Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then he added that I have told you before that there is somebody coming who is preferred ahead of me, preferred before me. It takes humility at a point when you are doing well to acknowledge that somebody is greater Somebody is ahead. Somebody is appointed ahead of you. Hallelujah. And not only that, John said, he was there before me. And he said something very interesting that we learned a couple of weeks ago. He said, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Which means that earlier on, I just knew somebody revealed. I didn't know. But now, I just came baptizing with water. But now my eyes are opened. And I know this is the Messiah. Hallelujah. And so, that day when John baptized Jesus, it wasn't an ordinary baptism. It was a major transition point between the old dispensation and a new dispensation. And so, John was called the last of the Old Testament prophets. He had a certain Levitical connection so you can say the prophets, the priests were there. But very importantly, Bible says that when Jesus went into the water and came out, the Spirit of God descended upon him and a voice from heaven affirmed him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It was an endorsement, a public endorsement of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Hallelujah. 
and who was chosen to midwife that process? John the Baptist. And so the mission of John was important in building a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The second thing we see in the life of John was self-denial. When we say self-denial, we simply mean to unselfishly limit or restrain your own interests in pursuit of a higher goal. When we say self-denial, we are saying that you unselfishly limit your own interest, restrain your own desires and your own interests because you are pursuing a higher goal. When a mother in the face of limited food decides to let the children eat and they ask, mom, what will you eat? And she says, oh, I'm all right. And she drinks water and sleeps. It's called self-denial. It is limiting your own desires and your own interests because at that point, you see something else as a higher calling, a greater responsibility or a higher priority. In the book of Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Tell the person next to you, deny yourself. Tell the person your vision is big, but you need to deny yourself. In the pursuit of the assignment, the vision, the goal, the dream, the aspirations that are on your heart, you will need to deny yourself something. Something that everybody else is pursuing. Something that everybody else thinks is appropriate. The person building the business denies himself or herself some pleasures because they want to build capital. The person building a ministry separates themselves from the things that other people pursue because they have one goal, to lift up the name of the Lord and to build an enduring work that will draw many to the kingdom. A person seeking to lose weight will go to a party and see the dessert table and smile and say, I'm okay. Not because they don't like what is served, but because they are denying themselves. Hallelujah. Now, self-denial was the pivot around which John's life revolved. If there was one attribute that describes John the Baptist as a whole, it was self-denial. In Matthew chapter 3, we see a description of the lifestyle of the man. On a daily basis, if you saw him, this is what you would see. And it is the very picture of self-denial. A man who has sacrificed everything for his calling. Verse 4 says, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Camel's hair, locusts, and wild honey. Who sent him to the wilderness? Very often, when we deny ourselves in the quest to build our mission or to pursue our mission, it's not because somebody has compelled us. 
it is because something inside is so strong that we decide we will forego something in pursuit of something greater. And so you look at John and you say, the location of his ministry suggests somebody who knew what he was doing. Why would he leave the big city and go to the wilderness? Biblically, the wilderness represents a place of separation, a place of uncertainty, a place of scarcity. When you are in the wilderness, you are in obscurity. Nobody sees you. It's a place of denial of pleasure. Things don't grow well in the wilderness. There is no food, there is no resource, there is no supply. The location of John's ministry was the wilderness. And then you look at his food and his clothing, and Bible says he was dressed in camel's hair, wore a leather belt, and ate locusts and wild honey. In describing him, Jesus said, those who wear soft clothes are in the king's palace. Friends, that vision God placed on your heart, what have you sacrificed for it so far? The dream that you call so dear, that picture that is so strong on your spirit, how much have you sacrificed for your own vision? How much have you given up for your own dream? A dream, an assignment, a vision sent from God will push you. It will force you. You don't need another person to push you or encourage you. It is the dream that works in you to forego and to abstain from some things. We learn from John the Baptist that self-denial is the key to greatness. Hallelujah. Sometimes you listen to the headlines or you get the news of a scandal and they say, this person, that leader, that traditional leader, that political leader, that person in that public space has done something scandalous and therefore has been reduced down to zero. And you look at what the person did and you know that if they had restrained themselves, restrained their interest in pursuit of a higher vision, they would have continued to climb. May God help us to deny ourselves of the things that others pursue and to focus on the vision, the dream that he has placed on our hearts. How many here have a dream that is special to you? How many have a vision that is so dear to your heart? How many are believing God for something very special that God will do in your life? Let's see by hand. You are trusting God for something beautiful, something awesome, something powerful, something so dear, something so big. And you know, without God, you can't do it. My prayer today is that God would help you to deny yourself. Because in your walk with God, certain things will come your way that will test you to see whether you truly, truly believe that which you are pursuing. And in that day, may you find the strength, the wisdom, and the grace to hold back when temptation comes your way. Hallelujah. May the word of God be strong in your heart. May the word of God be strong in your spirit. And may you forego and resist every temptation that will pull you back from the dream that God has placed on your heart. John teaches us a sense of mission and also a very strong sense of self-denial. The third thing we see in John is conviction. Conviction. Conviction can be described in different ways. 
being sold out. When a person is sold out to a vision, you can talk about conviction. They are sold out. That's the only thing they think about. Conviction can also be a dogged and unwavering stance. When a person takes a stance and they will never change it, no matter what you tell them, they are full of conviction. The third description of conviction is a non-negotiable position. Every one of us must have some positions in our lives that are non-negotiable. Because you will find that the world system is continually eroding away the foundations on which our faith are built. The media, social media, the discussions in the marketplace, ongoing fashion, new trends are suggesting that you can't mention the name of Christ in a public place and you can't say, I belong to Jesus. It is a subtle but increasingly bold attempt at marginalizing us and creating an anti-God environment. And sometimes we find ourselves being apologetic for being Christians. Apologetic for praying is a subtle agenda. And by the time our children's generation will come, if we don't take a stance today and fight for the gospel, by the time our children will grow old, you can't mention the name of Christ in public. It will be an offense. But let God be true. And every man a liar. What we believe, we believe. We know whom we have believed. And we are persuaded, we are convinced that he's able to do that which he has said concerning our lives. We will not apologize for our faith. It is a non-negotiable position. We are saved by grace. He picked us from the miry clay and placed us on a solid rock. We are who we are because of Jesus. Our life is not our own. Every blessing, every gift we have, we know it came from him. And when we celebrate him, we don't apologize. Conviction is an unwavering stance. A non-negotiable position being sold out on something. Friends, if we will make it and reach the full potential, there must be some non-negotiables in our lives. Your marriage must be non-negotiable. Your family must be non-negotiable. Your faith, non-negotiable. Certain pillars, plant some pillars in your life that are non-negotiable. Not based on the thinking of men or the approval of men, but on the word of God. Some things must be no discussion. Your loyalty to God and to the servant of God must be a point of no discussion. Amen. Because any time you leave a little door, a little space, the door will open wider. Every temptation, every discussion to compromise you starts with, um, I, I was just wondering, and it starts with a very subtle introduction. You say, eh, I've also thought about it. And then you open the door, and then before long, you reach the point of no return. You are going like roller skates into trouble. But if it's a non-negotiable position, when the person starts, you say, you know what, that's a no-go area. No discussion. Tell somebody, no discussion. Tell the person, no discussion. Plant pillars in your life that are a point of no discussion. Some things must be a no discussion subject. I will not listen to you. I will not discuss it. It may be important to you, but I will not even listen. 
He said, oh, but you hear me out first. I will not hear you and I will not listen. I will build a wall around my life and not allow you to put your poison in my life. Hallelujah. Tell the person, no compromise. Conviction, you are sold out. Amen. John was a man of conviction. All through his life, his message was the same. Repent, he preached judgment. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. But John's life and calling were about Christ. And so much as he was so great, he had to maintain that focus on the greater one. And so he passed some very important tests every follower must pass. And I would like you to walk us through first to understand why Jesus called John the greatest man born of a woman. The first test John passed is a test every associate and every follower must pass. It's called the test of the multitude. The test of the multitude. In Matthew 3, Bible says, as John began baptizing people in the wilderness, multitudes gathered around him. And it stresses that Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went to him. What do you do when you see a big crowd? What do you do when you see a big approval? Anyone else would have been tempted to say, ah, maybe I am rather the chosen one. It is human nature to say I'm a very important person. Many, if, if you are an observer of human history and a, and, and, and a student of, of history, you realize that several times in the political space, in the corporate space, even in the ministry space, the biggest challenge people face is being able to submit and go under authority after you've seen some progress and you've seen some results and some success. And so you hear people say something like, the pressure of the people made me stand for MP. The pressure of the people. He himself did not have any conviction, but the people pressurized him or her. Have you heard that before? When people gather around your work, does it make you lose sense of who God has called you to serve? John chose the moment when the multitude came to remind them that somebody was coming who was even greater than him. The second test is very similar to the first one. It is a test of approval. Approval or endorsement. Now, not only will multitudes gather around your work, your business, your, your assignment, but it also comes with approval. When people tell you, you are doing well, your product is good, you are doing fine, your show is good, people gather around your work and they endorse or approve your work, what do you do? Bible says that the Pharisees came to the Jordan. Now that was a big one. The religious establishment in those times will never go around something they don't approve of. And so, the people coming was a big victory. But the Pharisees coming to the Jordan was a big endorsement of the ministry of John. 
Now, anyone else would have said, I have arrived. But John said to them, I baptize you with water. Somebody else is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He consistently and continuously pointed to Christ. May that be our lifestyle. May that be our story. When we do amazing things and we get blessed, knowing where God has taken us from and what God has done in our lives, let's be careful to give God the praise and give God the glory. John said, you are looking at me and you think I'm doing well, but hey, there is somebody greater than me. He is the one I am serving and the one I am assigned to open the door for. Hallelujah. It works both here on earth and it also works in the realm of the spirit. Because when God places you under authority, you must be able to celebrate the authority you are placed under, no matter how much progress you make. Hallelujah. The test of the multitudes, the test of approval. The third test John faced was very interesting, is the test of competition. Competition. And sometimes, as happened with Abraham and Lot, the competition is not started by even the main protagonist. Look at what happened in the book of John, chapter 3. At a point, both Jesus and John were baptizing at the same time. And the disciples of John began to get worried because the crowds were going to where Jesus was baptizing. And so in John chapter 3, verse 26, the disciples of John gathered themselves and went to John for a discussion. Verse 26 says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, you know, let me pause here before I even read it. You know, John's disciples had a problem. When you watch golf, there's somebody called the caddy. The caddy holds the bag with the golf clubs in it. And when the, the, the person wins the golf, in every picture you see the caddy are hanging around. They are the ones who hold the golf clubs in their bag. The glory of the golfer touches the caddy. So sometimes, when the golfer wins the tournament, the caddy even celebrates. Golfers tend to be more conservative. But the caddy jumps and dances more than the, the one who has won. Because they understand a certain principle. You may not be the one playing, but as long as you are around the golfer, the blessing will touch you. It's a nice way of saying it in Ghana. So it's very interesting that the, the, the disciples of John were worried when John was not worried. And so they said, the one you testified about, who was with you beyond the Jordan, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. And John answered in verse 27 and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine 
is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. There is so much power in God's word. John says, if your heart is correct, if your heart is right, if your master is lifted up, you should be happy. If your alignment and loyalty are properly in place, your joy must be in the promotion and the lift, upliftment of the one you are called to serve. He said the friends of the bridegroom, they are happy. The best man is happy when the bridegroom is marrying. If he's a proper best man. The caddy rejoices when the golfer is winning. Any caddy who envies the golfer does not understand the principle of being a caddy. So John said, this is what I was born to do. 700 years before I was born, it was said that I would come and do this job. In my mother's womb, I aligned with this job. If he has been manifested and he is doing this work, my job is done and my heart rejoices. He must increase and I must decrease. That is the spirit of conviction. Hallelujah. It's the same temptation that Abraham and Lot faced. Lot's servants began to fight Abraham's servants. And that was the point where Lot should have called them and said, you guys come. Maybe nobody has told you all that I am all that I have, I owe to this man. I was nobody. God called him. He didn't call me. And he asked me to follow him. So we are following and we are serving. Please, go back and submit yourselves under authority. That was a test that Lord failed. But John the Baptist passed that test. May we all pass that test in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Now, it will cost you to pursue a vision. It will cost you to be a person of conviction. Being a person of conviction means sometimes walking away from a big contract because you are being asked to compromise your faith and you say, me. Kwabna mensa. Me ama fosu. I will never pay bribe. And you will lose the job. And you will not feel you have lost anything. Because a person of conviction knows that you will pay a price. But the good thing about working with God is that it will look like you have lost today. But you will gain tomorrow. <laughs> Hallelujah. John paid the price for sticking with his message. He paid the ultimate price because he lost his life. But today, the principle that I want to share with every one of us here is that it is worth your while to be a person of conviction. It is worth your while to stand for your faith and stand for your conviction and lose sometimes. The good news I have for somebody is that anyone who has stood for the gospel and stood for the kingdom and paid the price for your loyalty to God and for your loyalty to God's word 
and for your loyalty to the house of God, it, it may have come to you at a cost, but the God who is faithful and the God who you have served faithfully will reward you. I came to announce a reward for somebody, a person of conviction who has paid the price. God will lift you up. God will show himself strong. He will not suffer your foot to be moved. He will lift his name in your life. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. The fourth thing that John experienced was uncertainty. Uncertainty. Bible says, one day he woke up and said, are you the one who is to come? Because he was hearing about Jesus' work. But he also knew that he was in prison and he was about to die. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Every one of us goes through moments of uncertainty. Every one of us will experience some doubt at one point in our lives or another. When God called Moses, he argued, I can't speak. Elijah, after all the powerful manifestation on Mount Carmel, sat under a tree and said to God, please kill me. First Kings 19 verse 4. He said, just kill me. Everyone goes through doubts. The Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane momentarily tried to renegotiate his calling. If it be thy will, let this cup be taken. If you have gone through your own moments of doubt and uncertainty, the question is, does it mean you've betrayed your conviction? I came to tell everyone today that we all go through moments of doubt. Moments of uncertainty. Will God come through? Will he do what he has said concerning my life? John sent to Jesus for two possible reasons. The first one is that the Jewish people had a problem with the kind of Messiah Jesus was. They were looking for a political Messiah who would just lead the charge to militarily fight the Romans and overthrow them. That's why Barabbas was very was preferred because he was an insurrectionist. And so the Jewish people themselves had a certain problem with the kind of Messiah Jesus was. John's ministry and Jesus' ministry were markedly different. John preached repentance and judgment. Jesus preached forgiveness and mercy. John lived in the desert. Jesus was in the city and he would even have a party <laughs> and sit at table with people like Simon and Lazarus. It was not John's style. Their ministry types were different. John was fasting every time. So they said the son of man came eating and drinking. John must have had his own questions. So what if everything I've sacrificed all my life for, what if it's not him? What if he's not? I, I myself said he's the Messiah, but what if he's not? So a moment of questions about a messianic expectation. The second possible reason is that this is my cousin. And I'm in prison, possibly about to die. And he hasn't visited. And he still goes around preaching, casting out demons, healing the sick, 
opening blind eyes doesn't he care so the second possible reason is that John may have felt locked and forgotten and I'm sure every one of us can relate to moments in your life when the breakthrough that you expect does not come in the form you expected it to come or somebody that you think you've given so much for is not there for you at a particular funeral or a particular moment in your life and you say is that how the world is and so John felt forsaken doesn't mean he lost sight of his mission absolutely not every one of us is continually being perfected and so we are prone to feel uncertain and to feel some doubts but Jesus gave John the perfect answer Jesus said to him go tell the disciples go tell John what you see the blind see the lame walk the deaf hear the dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them what was he saying as long as God is at work as long as the counsel of God is manifesting itself don't doubt and don't believe don't disbelieve hallelujah this morning anyone going through moments of doubt about your vision and moments of doubt about your provision as you lift up your eyes and you see the counsel of God at work be assured that God is never too late somebody be assured that God will come through for you somebody be assured that God will fulfill his purpose concerning your life finally Jesus said the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John what did that mean John was the transition between the old and the new John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He spoke about the new covenant, about the Holy Spirit, but he didn't have the privilege of experiencing the dispensation of grace. In John 3 verse 5, Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The believer in Christ has the privilege of being born again, not of woman or of the flesh, but of the spirit. Tell somebody I'm born of the spirit. You have the spirit of God residing in you and working in you and leading you and guiding you the grace that you operate under john spoke about it but did not experience it and so when jesus said the least person in the kingdom is greater than john what he was saying that of those born of the flesh of those born of women elijah abraham david Jeremiah, anyone you can think of, none had risen greater than John the Baptist. But even then, you who have the Holy Spirit working in you are greater than John the Baptist. May somebody be encouraged. The Spirit of God is at work in your life. 
somebody be encouraged. God is walking this journey with you. There is somebody that God sees as truly great because the Spirit of God is at work in you. The grace of God is available to you. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but you are born again by the Spirit of God. I bring to you the ministry of John the Baptist, a man who had a mission to serve another, a man who denied himself of everything in the pursuit of that mission, a man with a strong conviction, and a man who, like you and I, went through his own uncertainty. But we are sure that every single one of us has greatness inside of us. May that greatness emerge. May the counsel of God emerge concerning your life. May God fulfill everything he has said concerning you. And may he lead you from glory to glory, from glory to glory. May he work things out in your favor. May he lift you beyond where you have always been. That which is called impossible, may it become possible in your life. And in all things that you do, may the name of the Lord alone be glorified in your life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to Springboard Zone, an inspirational podcast by Albert and Comfort Okran. Like our Facebook and Twitter pages at Albert and E. Okran and Comfort Okran A for free resources and information about our itinerary conferences and media broadcast. For speaking appointments, email albert.okran at icloud.com or SMS or WhatsApp us on plus 233-2499-99000. You may also subscribe to www.albertokran.com, amazon.com or your favorite online bookstore for copies of our inspirational books and audiovisual materials. Until we come your way again, Always remember, you are blessed indeed. The light has come.